Welcome to Inside the Firm, a podcast dedicated to small business owners and hosted by entrepreneurs, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Each week, they take you on their journey of how to start, run, and grow a business by bringing you inside their architecture and real estate development firm. Get a behind-the-scenes tour of how these business leaders manage their clients and foster company culture while creating new and innovative projects. And now your hosts, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Welcome to a special episode of Inside the Firm. This week, our firm had a company outing in the afternoon. So instead, I'm going to share with you a very special interview I did with Bob Fisher, principal and editor at large at Design Intelligence. And Bob and I had a great conversation. If you don't know what a design intelligence is, they are an independent company that is dedicated to the business success of organizations in architecture, engineering, construction, and design. Bob and I had a great discussion, and in the end, he ended up turning around the interview on me and became the interviewer, and I became the interviewee. And it was fun. And it was, I think, uh, I shared some things that probably maybe wouldn't share with Alex because he just already knows, you know, where I'm at with, with certain things, right? So uh, enjoy. But before we get started, do you know what many professionals in architecture dread? Editing down a manufacturer's specification. You're staring down a 54-page specification and you only want one product and all of its attributes? There's a better way. And it's not throwing the entire specification into your project's documents. It's ArcCAD's SpecWizard. SpecWord is a, is a patented, one-of-a-kind, automated spec writing tool that allows you to specify a product in minutes, not hours. Just select the products and options you want to specify and generate a three-part CSI spec in your choice of formats. Best of all, it's free. It requires no registration. So go to arccat.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com and start building better content today. Welcome to the podcast today, Bob. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, it's it's great to have you. I know we tried to, to we tried to get you on um, a couple of weeks back, and the schedule's just been hectic and crazy. Um, but but I'm glad to have you on. So t- tell me, why don't you just kick us off by telling me a little bit about design intelligence? Because I, I took a look at your guys' website, was very intrigued by all of the things you do, but then more intrigued by your background and what you did at Cartoon Network. I think it's totally cool, and now how you're kind of flowing in and out all over the design world. Well. Uh, you know, you, you've asked a couple of different questions, and they take a little bit of time to answer, but I'll be as succinct as I can. So I'll start with design intelligence. So we're in our 25th year, and we are essentially a business of design organization. Um, we have four different practice areas that we're in. Uh, design intelligence is the name of the umbrella organization. So the first of those um, practice areas is called the Design Futures Council. And the Design Futures Council uh, has been around as long as we have, and it's essentially a leadership organization for those who are leaders in architecture, engineering, construction, uh, design and architecture education, as well as a few leaders from uh, places like technology firms and building product manufacturers who come together as kind of a network of, uh, uh, of people who have tremendous amount of influence in shaping the industry to talk about topics that are of strategic importance to people in leadership positions. So some examples of those are uh, technology, applied innovation, uh, sustainable design and construction, uh, education, 
uh, talent strategies throughout the life of a firm, as well as generally speaking, the business of running a professional practice. So those issues and topics that we're, we're talking about uh, connect a lot of the other areas of, of what we do. The next um, practice area that we have is called design intelligence research. So we have a research group that does a combination of research that we make available publicly, some of it we charge for, some of it we don't, and research that we do that's privately commissioned by firms and organizations. So one example of um, a public piece of research that many people are familiar with is we have a comprehensive um, compensation benchmarking report uh, that a lot of folks use uh, to help them figure out how it is that they're going to uh, compensate the talent that's within their firms. Then you know, an example of a piece of privately commissioned research is we, we recently did a project with um, Tarquette, the flooring company. I don't know if you're mm -hmm. uh, On uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion in the design and construction professions. And we also do a lot of other things that fall under the realm of practice management. So it could be a market analysis, it could be a executive uh, executive competition. It sounds like you're a dog fan too. Yeah, <laughs> I'm actually going to close the door to our office because there's uh, they're, they're, they get a little crazy. We live in the country, and so it's. Uh, there's always people walking around. Uh, we have this neighborhood, uh, <laughs> and there's other dogs, so they go a little nuts. I understand completely, and I'm I'm, I'm a dog lover myself. So, uh, so anyway, we have our research group, and we do this. We do public and privately commissioned research. Then we have a media arm, and that media group um, publishes our research and our thought leadership content. We have three different. Uh, major publications that we put out there. One of them is called the Design Intelligence Quarterly, and that one is actually free and open to the public, uh, available through our website. And then we have uh, what's called Design Intelligence Strategic Advisors, which is where we work individually with firms on, you know, issues and topics that they're, that they're trying to work through, uh, and so they can private businesses. And I work each of those different areas. So that's uh that's a pretty busy thing. That is a very busy thing, yeah. I know what it's all I know what it's all about to wear that many hats. Um you and you kind of touched on one of the things I wanted to ask you about was I, I don't know if you can speak about it and if, and if you can't then I would ask then I would ask it in the in the phrase of a public um what you could speak about publicly. You, can you talk about what your favorite privately commissioned study has been or or if not then publicly? Well I can tell you about kind of the categories. Actually yeah. I have a great passion for research, right? So I have a very unusual educational background in that my undergraduate work was a Bachelor of Fine Arts in painting, printmaking, and sculpture, and my master's degree is in business. Um, oh, interesting. When I went through my education, that was quite an unusual combination. But what I really developed an appreciation for in graduate school was the rigor of research, and one of the things that I'm very excited about that's happening increasingly in the practice of architecture is serious research that is going into helping inform better uh, creative decisions, right? So it's, in some ways, it's like saying, you know, which one of your kids is your favorite? Um, there are certain types of, re I enjoy working on all the research that we do, 
Um, some things that I find a little bit, you know, personally more enjoyable is I like a lot of the marketing-based stuff. Um, I love going out to clients, for for example, and finding out what they really care about, um, what it is that uh, they feel about their relationships with the firms that they work with. Um, because we're in a unique position because we get to go out and get, we get the truth, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's really hard when you're in a firm, uh, as, as you and I'm sure many of your listeners know, to have an accurate idea of what's important to the marketplace and what is it that my clients truly think, what is it that they truly value, and how is it that I explain what I do in terms that um, really touch on what's important to clients and what it is that they value. Yeah, absolutely. I think, the, <laughs> you know, we, we started our firm 10 years ago uh, from scratch and we had no clients. And I think um, the reason why you're spot on about that is because we're just saying at, at when you first start out or even even maybe you know, into your tenure and things get slow, you're just happy to have work, um, you know, so. So being, but the, I think being able to have <clears throat> and do a study like that and really understand exactly where the market is at and how you can perform for it is invaluable. And I'm glad to hear that there's there's people out here, out there like you guys doing that doing that sort of thing. Um, would love to see if we could we could partner up in the in the future in some point like that because we're we're about hitting our 10 year mark where we're thinking of you know kind of transforming, um, growing up so to speak a little bit more. Um, we didn't even start out with a business plan. We still don't have a business plan. <laughs> we have just been doing fundamental, we have just concentrated on, on trying to do fundamental things um, correctly uh, in, in the best sort of way and just best practices and honing our systems in. But we have never really written out a business plan. Um, and I know that was one thing I, I, I listened to you today uh, on Mark's podcast, the Entree Architect podcast. Um, Episode 48, I believe, if you, if you haven't listened to that, everybody's listening here, uh, check that out. Um, but the, the idea that every architect should be telling a story through their business plan um, is, is super important. I think overlooked. It, it absolutely is. And, you know, I think people sometimes have um, maybe a misperception or an inaccurate idea of what a business plan is. And I don't know if you would agree with this. You know, having been at your practice now for for ten years, but running a business is an extremely creative thing to do, right? Uh, the beauty of an architecture practice is that you you get to enjoy the creativity of building the business, but you also get to enjoy the creativity of what it is that you do for your clients, right? Absolutely. There's there's creativity on all kinds of different levels, you know, from the way you market yourself, the way you don't market yourself, uh, client problems come up, how, how do you solve those, how do you, how do you creativity, how do you go after um, a certain project in a creative way to kind of help to beat the competition? I mean, the way you handle emails, you know, on and on and on. Yeah, it's not just, um, it's a design. I mean, I think one of our episodes that we've done is even called Design Your Business you know, or design your life. And that, that's sort of one of the things we sort of live by is if you're designing all of these systems it's, and, and you can you can have things to fall back on like templates for proposals or the way, again, even email templates, it streamlines things. Um, which kind of leads me to another question I was hoping to ask you is, do you have any favorite uh, productivity tools out there right now that you, that you would like to recommend to people? Um, one of the beautiful things about technology is like you can automate things at this point. Well, it scares some people. 
I think it really helps small small to medium firm architects act like a bigger firm. I do have two, but they might be kind of unusual based on what some other guests would come on and recommend. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Well, so the the first one is um, is OneNote. Um, Microsoft. It's a Microsoft product, and I have found that uh, it has been invaluable for me in two ways. One is that I I I capture more of the ideas that I have, and two, I can capture them in virtually any way that I want to express them. Right? I can type something out. I can record a soundbite. I can um, I can put photographs in there and draw on top of them. It's it's a very flexible tool that allows me to capture ideas when I have them because I can also do it from any kind of mobile device or desktop. I find that I don't lose as many ideas, right? I don't know if you you've ever had a wonderful idea and you don't get to scroll it down on time and then all of a sudden it's gone and you have to try to recreate it if you if you hope to. So I think I think we all have. Um, I'm in the process of sort of outlining a book, and there's been a couple times where I'm like, you know, what I try to do is name the chapters, and there's sort of a theme from there. And there's been a few times where I I haven't had my phone on me or something, and it just kills me because I know that the idea that I came up with was it was something I could have ex I could at least expand on. And so and don't we all hate that feeling, right? Mm -hmm. And so. A tool like Microsoft OneNote, or as I understand it, Evernote is a very similar kind of tool. It's such a uh, it's such a wonderful productivity tool because it allows you to capture more of the ideas that you have. And the second tool recommendation that I have uh, fits perfectly with what you just said about writing a book. Right. So I happen to be a better kind of off the cuff speaker than writer. Right. I mean, all of us have our different ways that we learn and all of us have our different ways that we communicate. I happen to be someone who does pretty well with verbal communication and visual communication. So what I do uh, in order to be able to produce more content is I will actually just scroll down a quick outline and it usually comes in the form of a mind map. And then I will record myself talking about what that mind map is. So let's take your book as an example. Let's say you wanted to make some quick progress that was relatively painless in uh, getting to a first draft of one of your chapters. Mm -hmm. So if I were doing that, if I were going through that process, what I would do is I would create a big mind map, if you know what that is, of the content for whatever chapter it was that I wanted to work on. And then I would simply record myself uh, explaining what was in that mind map, including all those things that come to mind as you're speaking about something that you might not have thought of when you were you know, putting together that original outline. Take that recording, and there's an online service called Rev.com, and you have two different choices of how to get that trans. Uh, how to get that transcribed, right? You can have a human being do it for about a dollar a minute, and the accuracy is great. The turnaround time quite fast. I think it takes them about 24 hours. 
and they've just debuted a second option, which is automated transcription, which takes about 15 minutes and is 10 cents a minute, but it's only about 80% accurate. So if you want to cut through that, that stage where you are just getting things out of your head and on paper or on screen, where you can then refine the ideas and move them around and get them to really um, crystallize and make sense, that's a fantastic tool if you're comfortable in front of a microphone and clearly you are. Oh, I love that. I love that for the book. Man, I could just be walking around the block and kind of start outlining the chapters, uh, literally just telling a story. And because largely it's going to be a, a collection of personal stories, you know, starting from of how I got into the industry, you know, where I grew up and, and what that all sort of means socially, economically and everything like that. Was it rev.com? Is that what you said? R-E-V? Yes. Okay. I'll have to check yeah, that out. I, I recommend them enough where you would think that I I was, you know, that I worked for them. Yeah. And the same thing with uh, either Evernote or OneNote. Those, those have been extraordinarily important to me and then actually others at Design Intelligence to uh, to make us productive. But you, you've made me curious about a couple of things. I don't, I don't know if I know you're here to interview me, but I'm, I've got some questions about what you've got going on. Yeah, sure. Shoot, shoot from the hip. My business partner, Al Gore, he's usually on the podcast with me, but he had a baby. So I would love to, uh, I'd love to have a dialogue with you. Oh, fantastic. Well, um, good luck to Al. Yeah, just a second. He, he's, he's doing well. Very good. Great to hear. So one of the things that, um, that I learned when I was taking a look at your website uh, is that you're involved with not only construction and architecture, but also development. If I understood, if I remember correctly from what I read, you personally were in construction before you um, got into architecture. So I've got questions on a couple of different levels on that. Yeah. Is, how, does, how does your experience in construction change or affect the way that you work that you do as an architect? is one. And then how is it that your involvement in all three of these areas shapes your business? Great question. The first one I can answer in two different ways. Um, and that is, so uh, to back up, I started, uh, I tried to work on the farm for one summer. I grew up between a ranch and a farm, really poor rural area in North Dakota. So there wasn't a lot of opportunity and that was the first opportunity for employment. And I'd always been such like a little entrepreneur, like one of the first things I did, uh, even before I actually tried to do, you know, farm work, like on an hourly basis was uh, picking choke cherries. So there's this giant choke cherry tree that my grandmother had. Um, and I picked them, I picked like a couple five gallon buckets and they took me to the farmer's market. And I, that's kind of how I figured out how to, oh, wow, you can, you can take raw resources and, you know, make money. And um, so <clears throat> tried to work on the, on the, on the farm for one summer. And it was a sugar beet farm. And in North Dakota, it is very, they, it, it's 100% humidity, 100 degrees, and the mosquitoes are worse than anywhere. I mean, I've been to the middle of the Amazon jungle. There are no mosquitoes there. North Dakota is where it's at. So uh, I, I tried that for just a couple weeks and I hated it. And I just, it was, you had to wake up really late in the night to go change the irrigation water. And my dad's best friend was a contractor. And so I called him up. And I said, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll pick up trash all day. I don't care. I, I want to go into 
into um, and, and try this try this construction thing out. So we we uh, he hired me. I think I got seven twenty five an hour. I was the, the gopher on site, so to speak, and we tore off and put on one um, one roof every single day, just single family, you know, asphalt shingles. And I fell in love with it. I just I love the culture. Um, you know, I love the guys cussing, swearing on on site, the masculinity of it all. And then being able to see the progress, take things off, put things on, and and do you know skillful things with your hands in a crafts craftsmanlike way. And so every single summer I would try to get in with a different general contractor to learn a different trade. So one 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 year was you know, roofing, like I talked about. One year was just concrete. One year was framing. One year was all finished work, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I was actually a pretty poor student in in high school, uh, just because I went to a very small. Uh, school. There was only I graduated 19 people, and you didn't have any choices of your classes. And I'm such a contrarian that if I don't have choices and I don't get to do what I want, then I just lose interest. Um, so I said, so after high school, I, I said, well, I, I at least got to have some kind of degree. So I went to tech school in North Dakota State School of Science in Wapaton, and went for uh, building construction technology, which is basically uh, teaches you how to be a, a probably about a class B level contractor, not class A where you can build skyscrapers, but you learn residential, light commercial, how to set steel, how to do concrete even more. You take, you get all sort of, you get certified in the flat work and everything. It was great. And I, I actually became a good student. Uh, I was on the Dean's list every semester. And then, love, then actually, since I love school so much, one day I was looking at the blueprints and they actually were blueprints too, even though it wasn't that long ago, like 20 years ago. Um, Looking at them, and I, I said to myself, well, "Well, why did they, why did they draw this house the way they did it?" And I just I had more and more questions, and I thought, "Well, I really liked school. Um, I figured out how to put myself through school, working and with scholarships, and basically kind of made like a, I was getting kind of paid to do it. I mean, I had that much scholarship money coming in, and, and I was, you know, doing the part-time stuff. That I went up and applied up up the road, 75 miles north to North, north Dakota uh, NDSU." Uh, North Dakota State, <clears throat> North Dakota State University, applied to their architecture program, got accepted, and again excelled. But um, the first part, the biggest struggle I had at the beginning was I had all that construction knowledge, and everything I wanted to design was way too practical. And you know, when you when you go through the ringer in the first two or three years in design school, it seems like I mean, no matter what it is, even industrial design you you're it's all you know the philosophy has to come through and it's more about being loose and free and not caring about the constructability that was the biggest hurdle from the beginning and i was terrible i was not a good architecture student design wise because of that in the first couple of years and i finally broke through that um after i got my butt kicked a few uh, you know enough times in design critiques to where i loosened up and I, I just made up, you know, I, I was convinced, okay, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be constructible at this point. And one of the, my best, one of the best professors, he's still a, a very good friend, uh, Daryl Booker. You know, he, and he the, the, I had his studio the very first, for the first and second studios, and he told me to let go, and that I needed to let go, and that don't worry, just keep all of this construction knowledge in the back of your head. And he said, right now it's all about you need to learn design. You need to be. You need to learn design. You need to be an architect. It's all you know. Humanity needs good design. The built environment needs all these things, and that stuff will come through later. And he was right, and it did. 
Um, so I graduated at the top of my class as a result because I was able to fuse those two things. And then when I got into practice <clears throat> with my business partner, Al, then the thing it allowed us to do at a very young age was um, convince clients that even though we don't have a lot of built work, and we didn't really have any built work when we started, uh, it's actually why we call it F9 Production Studios. It's the hot key on the keyboard to make renderings. And so we were just convincing people that we could build these, we could design these buildings for them and that they would, they would perform well and, you know, they would stand up, they wouldn't fall down, coupled with uh, our, our construction experience. And people trusted us. Enough people trusted us in order to do that, um, that we, that we could, we could, we could start from nothing. And then I guess there's will answer in three ways. <laughs> so culminating all the way up to where we're at now, where I'm a class B contractor, I don't think I would be able to be a class B contractor. I don't think, uh, you know, you got to take a test. And then in our municipality where we operate in Longmont, Colorado, you have to convince the building official that you know what you're doing. I had enough building experience prior to being an architect to where I could show them a portfolio of that and they, you know, they rubber stamped it and now here we are um, actually acting as the architect, contractor and developer on our first development project. So, you know, there's it's sort of like ups and downs to the whole thing. There's, there's no, there's negatives and positives just like anything else, but that's kind of how it translated for me. And I forgot your second question. <laughs> oh, well, it, it, the question was with all the different things that you're, that you're into um, with construction, with architecture, and with development, how has that experience shaped uh, shaped your business? I mean, one of the follow-up questions I had for you, for example, is because of your background, do you do a lot of uh, design-build work, or do you find yourself pairing up with uh, other contractors and doing just the design? Both, all of the above. But I would, I would, well, I'd probably, I'd like to speak a little bit about the design-build portion of it. So. Uh, <clears throat> What the very first design build project that we did in house was a tiny house, and it was called Alice. We won an International Architecture Award. We're very proud of it. We were on HGTV, and it had foldable a foldable wall. So it had a stack that folded down, this awning that folded up. It was nothing like the other tiny houses that were out there. And I think the only reason we were able to do that was because we were architects and people with a lot of building knowledge and, and experience. So we weren't we weren't afraid to take the leap that other people who were building these tiny houses um, were maybe afraid to do, where they could, they could make transformable architecture. You know, we can we can model everything in Reddit in our CAD software, and we can know that we can be very precise in the field um, because we have that knowledge. And then that led to two more tiny houses that we built for Subaru, which uh, the, those were actually even more transformable. And again, I don't think if we if we did if we weren't kind of having a foot in both worlds, we wouldn't be able to do it. And the same thing goes for our current development project. There's some very tricky details that we're doing right now, where we sort of have these ramps underneath some open tread stairs that go to roofs, and then um, at the same time, there's it's still a very commodity-like uh, project in, in design where the foundation is completely square. It's 100% a rectangle. It doesn't jog up and down. It doesn't jog left or right if you're looking down at it. But once we got into the framing stage of it, there were 
they were little structural architectural contractor, like all kind of in, in one sort of tricks that we did to, to give it depth. So if anything, it's just been really empowering to have all, have all of the, to be able to wear all those hats at the same time. Um, it's also very exhausting, as I mentioned before we started recording. Uh, but it's like Alex says, you know, we, he and I were having a heart to heart about two days ago um, as he's starting to migrate back into getting back on the job site and, and in the firm after having his second child was that it's so stressful to do a design build. But, oh, man, after it's done, it's like one of the most rewarding. It's like having another child. It really is. It's so rewarding afterwards because you look back at it and you go, holy cow, we designed it, we built it, we sold it. I mean, the, the benefits that you reap after that, and then the confidence it gives you. Uh, I mean, it gives a clients even in hiring you because they know that they, they do have another, it's just another level of, um, of, of trust that they can put in you that whatever you're drawing can turn into reality. Yeah, well, and I imagine also that it removes, uh, that you don't have a problem that many other uh, practitioners do. You know, I, I hear practitioners talking all the time, and it doesn't matter if they're a small firm practitioner or if they're working in a firm with 2,000 other people, that there's this great kind of divide. It's almost like a cultural difference between uh, contractors and designers. And it creates a lot of real-world problems, you know, when you're working on bigger projects, actually projects of any size, um, but a... Um, a buddy of mine, a guy named Mike Lefevre, who spent half of his career um, working as an architect, as a licensed architect, and half of his career working in a construction company, he just wrote a book called Managing Design, and it's all about how uh, how everyone within the design and delivery continuum can help bridge this divide between uh, all the different all the different cultures that they have. Right, architects do things one way, contractors do things another way, engineers do things a third way, etc. But you have the ability, based on your experience, to understand uh, a contractor by uh, truly from their perspective, by by being one of them. Right, you speak the language like a native. Absolutely. I mean, and now when you say contractors, the way I interpret that is even subcontractors. Like they're the ones. Yeah, they're the ones performing performing work. Um, I there was a uh, there was a meme I made I don't know about two or three weeks ago because it it, it was just an amazing day on the job site uh, that we had the other that I had the other day where I had three subcontractors come up to me and say um, I've never seen a superintendent carry a nail gun like you and I go what do you mean they're like at all. And they and I've just gotten compliments after compliments and compliments after from all the subcontractors saying over and over again that they look like, when's the next build? When are we going to do the next one? And it's just this whole it's just another level of they the trust that and even the subcontractors now trust us in in this in this very exclusive way to where they say we just want to work with you. And I I ask them like well well why? And they go well two two things you get down in the mud with us. And, and do the dirty work, and and you're happy, and you're happy about it, and you're here all the time, and you know all the answers. They don't, they don't know that I don't know all the answers, but so I must, I must be putting on a good show. <laughs> but I, but I, I think what they're asking about is like, I, since we drew it, 
you know, we're not the contractor interpreting an architect's drawings. We're an architect acting as a contractor, just explaining the drawings in, in as clear detail as possible. I mean, we could pull up the model on the job site, which is incredible to them, you know, and, and do a quick test fit. Because there's always things that change every single time, no matter how hard you try to plan around everything. Every single design project, design build project that we've done, even my own house that I'm sitting in right now, I thought I had it all figured out because we're testing it with the model. And sure, we do 95% of the time, but there's always that 5% of the time where there's a field adjustment that has to be made because you just can't know it all ahead of time. And and for us to be able to pull out a laptop on site and sit with the framers and work things out, and so they're not losing time or and money as a result, it's just a huge stress reliever for them. I can just see, like, they're not... They don't show up to the job site, um, our job site begrudgingly. They show up happily. And that's one of the biggest, one of the things they t- they've told me over and over again. That, you know, it's amazing to hear it. Uh, it's a lot of them are, are um, Latino background, Latino, Latino descent. And that culture is so, it, um, happiness is everything to them. I think even more so than, than like your standard American. And that's one of the things they've said to me over and over again is they've said, are you happy? And that's a weird thing. I just, I'm kind of struck, I was struck right away. I'm, yeah, I'm very happy. How about you guys? Very happy, very happy. We, we, love, we love working for you. We love working for you. So when you talk about bridging a gap, I think that's, it, it's exactly that. And it goes all the way down from the subcontractor up to, you know, let's say we were acting as a contractor for another developer, but we were also the architect. I mean, if you can, if you can be the glue in between everybody and make everything work, um, everybody's happy in the end. Well, and not only are people happy, you know, you've got a positive experience working together, but I have to believe that that kind of um, that kind of good communication, good working relationship really helps you stay true to design intent and deliver a better project for your client. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We. The best, the best, and so we, we do do, we do uh, practice as an architect in the traditional sense where we, it's, you know, there's an owner and a contractor. We're separate from them. Sometimes we do CA, sometimes we don't. Um, but the best, we can tell when it's working really well when we don't get a call. And on some very complicated houses that we've designed, some super, super modern ones, where it's just, you know, they're through framing. And I call Brian up and I say, Brian, how did framing go? He goes, we're done. No calls, no calls on that, you know, very complicated. No, the models were spot on. You know, we've worked with you enough to where we understand your process. You understand our process. Um, and it seems to be a happy marriage. So I've got some questions, some other questions for you. I know you you brought me on here to ask me a few questions, but I'm I'm really intrigued about a few other things. Do you think we can keep going talking about Yeah. Yeah. So, um, how much of your practice by percentage is residential versus commercial? Oh, I would say we're we're probably at that's a tough one. We need to do some we need to do some math at some point. But if I just had to say off the cuff, because we've gotten so many big bigger projects lately, probably about seventy percent residential and thirty percent commercial. And within and, residential, you're you're primarily talking about custom single family homes, right? Are you or are you doing are you doing everything? Everything. We do everything. It would I, that's uh sometimes it exhausts some of our employees. <laughs> See the thing about it is is that uh 
Alex, when Alex graduated, when Alex and I graduated, um, you know, we were up, we were up, we were up on the rooftop of the Hodo, which is a uh, hotel downtown Fargo after graduation night. And we jokingly said, we'll start a firm in 10 years. And right now would be 10 years from now. But the Great Recession hit. I was working for a uh, very high-end boutique firm on Pearl Street in Boulder, Boulder, Colorado. And Alex is working right off of Wall Street for Daniel Liebskin. Um, doing, I mean, we were both doing in, in our uh, in our separate ways, doing like the pinnacle of what we wanted to do. I was doing, you know, multi multi million dollar homes. He was doing multi billion dollar uh, city uh, developments and, and skyscrapers and, and things like that. And then we got laid off, and there was no work. Um, and then we found a little bit of work, and then we started this firm. And we've always, I, I don't think we. That was one of the most painful things in my life to be laid off like that. Uh, going home to tell my wife, you know, that I lost my job. Al too. I mean, he just we were just heartbroken. And I don't think we'll we'll always have that scar. And so with that scar, we've always just said we will do we will do just about anything, any any kind of style of of project, as long as it makes sense. Um, so. You know, we, we do stuff that is just as simple as an interior kitchen remodel all the way up to Alex and his side of the firm are doing some $10 million plus uh, mixed use developments where there's single family, multifamily and commercials, commercial stuff on the first floor. Uh, a couple of my guys are doing uh, five plexes, seven plexes. Um, the, 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 the cannabis industry down here is is out of control. So a lot of people are doing, you know, um, CBD extraction plants. We do stuff like that. We do tend to finishes. We are just all over the map. And our idea is if we get the, the most, uh, we're going to be as diverse as possible always because we never want to send our guys home to their wives and tell them that they, they lost their job. So we're going to do our best um, to have as many, as many, um, as many sticks in the fire as we can and so that it doesn't go out. Uh, is most of your work in and around Longmont? It's not. It's We are licensed in three states, uh, Idaho, North Dakota, Colorado. Most of our work is in Colorado. We do consulting for other firms, though, um, all over the United States, East Coast, West Coast. Uh, we've done some consulting for overseas firms um, where it's just building information modeling. So we're taking their building products like Windows and putting them into Revit. Uh, we used to work, we still, we have sort of had, we used to have a great partnership with ArcCat, who's a, a wonderful sponsor of this podcast now, um, where we built most of their um, models for Revit. Uh, so, and then, but primarily with architecture, it's up and down the front range in Colorado. So it goes all the way from Fort Collins all the way down to Colorado Springs. So we operate in probably at this, at, at any given time, maybe two dozen different jurisdictions, counties and cities all over Colorado. A lot, of, a lot of stuff in Denver, Boulder, Boulder County, our, you know, our real estate developments in Longmont, um, we're all over the place. So was that by design or did you, did that come about based on reacting to what opportunities were out there? Both. But, well, it was by design, but then we just, you know, we, if there was opportunities, we took them. The thing, the one, the one of the most interesting things that I noticed uh when I used to work for that firm in Boulder, right before they went on, right before they went under, and then I got laid off, is I was trying to segue them into getting some government work because that was the only, that was the only thing that was really there for a while was 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 government funded work, 
And so I distinctly remember a meeting, going into a meeting with my cousin, who that's who kind of was doing a lot of these uh, contract government, these government, government contracts. And he point blank asked that principal that I was working for, how are you guys marketing yourselves? And I, I, it looked like a deer in the headlights. And the principal said, well, we, it's just all word of mouth. And I, I just had this epiphany. And I, so I went back home and looked um, and, and checked out the internet and um, was just looking for Colorado architects. And I realized that there was this giant hole in the Colorado market, and there probably still is, you know, in multiple states throughout the United States, where architects are just not marketing themselves in a business uh, standpoint. You know, it's all about, well, Nancy knows John, and then John, and they all run in this very wealthy circle, and we're just going to do one percenter houses and stuff like that. And so since we were so hungry, and since nobody was taking advantage of that, uh, we took to social media um, and have, we have a great Facebook presence, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and then our website. And then we actually started using Google AdWords, which landed us clients in like South Dakota of all places. Somehow they were, there's not, you know, one of the guys who hired us from South Dakota said, we said, why did you hire a Colorado firm? And he goes, well, there's no good ones in South Dakota. I don't know if that's still true or whatever, but um, that's how we got that. And then, and then we just, we kind of, we built upon not only just the architecture, website and, and marketing and, and literally outward marketing, you know, using, using Thumbtack, um, Angie's List. Like we were not afraid to dip our toes into that stuff world. I think a lot of other, what I like to call capital A architects, um, where, you know, got the core, got the Corbusier glasses on and they kind of like, um, look down on a, on a, on a master bedroom addition, you know, off the back of a house where we said, well, money's green. And, you know, if we, if we if we embrace that, and, and we we follow one of our favorite books is uh, the Lean Startup, and so if we follow that kind of practice, keep our salaries low, just where we can live off them. And what we've done is, you know, in that kind of practice is we always have extra. We we have a we look more profitable than maybe we are because our salaries are much lower than what a typical principal is, but that allows us to do things like put money towards, uh, spend money on that first tiny house that we built, um, put all this kind of money that we've had to put towards the development to get to get that off the ground. And we sort of just keep leapfrogging up and up and up, um, you know, to bigger rocks um, as, we, as we move ahead. So it, it was by design. And then whatever opportunities come our way, we're, we're selective in a, in a, in a, at a certain level. But generally, if it, if it makes sense, we'll, we'll try the project out. So when you take a look at all the different kinds of work that you do, uh, do you ever make decisions to take on a project or not take on a project purely based on profit, or are there other factors that go into what you decide to take on versus what you decide to uh, to pass on? I, we try to look for red flags, and that's taken a while to understand like what a, what a good red flag is. Uh, not a good red flag, just one that's very obvious. One, one of them is if we get an email from a potential uh, client or maybe it's a follow-up email after the initial phone call or meet and greet, and it is, it is over a page long, it is just this rambling, giant list, that's a no. That is a red flag. That is a, this is a management issue. And it's, you're never going to get those clients, not under control, but just in sync with you is the way I would describe it. 
and we had to learn it the hard way. Um, we had to we had to go through a couple clients or to have a couple clients and accept a couple clients like that for us to go. We're never doing that again. I think we ended up with kind of mutually firing each other on, on a few instances and said we're, we're never doing that again. Um, regarding profitability, I actually just had an employee ask me a question the other day about this. He, he, was, he, was, he wasn't very happy about it. Um, uh, this little condo project that we took on in Boulder. And, you know, because it was more of an interior design project than anything. And so he asked, well, why did we take that on? It doesn't seem profitable at all. And so I broke down the numbers for him and proved him that, A, it was profitable. But then I gave other examples about um, of how maybe we took we took it on the nose in with, with uh, a house that I, I really like that's on our website. It's called Jazz House. I went and looked at the fees for that, and we did that in 2012. So we had only been around for maybe two years. But that client came to me, and we were very hungry at that point. It was just me and Alex. Um, when that client came to me, and they had this very unique shape of land. It was, it was literally a triangle piece of land. And they they said to me, I want to, we want our house to be, um, we want our house to be an icon in Denver. We want it to be an iconic house. So I I gave them a, a very, very good price, something that would be about 25% of what we charge now. And I explained to my, one of my employees who, who was aggravated by, you know, some of the projects we were taking on. And I said, look, here's an, here's an example of sometimes why you do take on certain clients and, and maybe why you, you know, cut a fee down or something just because you need that portfolio piece. And I explained to him in sequence about how that taking on that client, getting that built, getting that portfolio, establishing a relationship with this particular contractor, then led us to uh, this other typology that we do, which is assisted living uh, group homes. They're like 16 bag group homes, um, 8,000 square feet, very profitable for our firm. And, and they're also feel good, feel good work because we're doing, we're doing stuff for a, a, a protected class of Americans who who need it, you know, they have Alzheimer's and dementia and everything like that. But after I laid that whole process out for him, he, everything clicked and he goes, oh, okay, well, I just needed to put in perspective. So it's tricky. Um, which ones we'll take on and which ones, which ones we won't from a profitability standpoint. And it's a gamble, right? But that's what I'm doing every day as an entrepreneur is gambling. You know, I, I always like to say that we wake up broke. You just, you're hungry, you're broke every single day. And you got to push them, push a rock up a mountain. That's a really, uh, I love that expression that you just used. Wake up broke every day. Um, the founder of our firm is a guy named Jim Kramer, and he used to say he spent every day running scared. But it's the same basic idea. I like, I like your version better. Oh, thanks. Earlier, you were talking about um, marketing, and you and you said that you noticed that there's really a lack of uh, architects marketing themselves in your local market and later you were talking about you know having these uh these discussions where uh folks who worked at your firm were sort of challenging some of the decisions um the profitability decisions that you were uh, making and taking on various projects um how in your last 10 years have you seen uh have you seen any change in attitudes uh, among architects toward marketing, uh, specifically in business generally? They seem to embrace social media a lot more. Um, but I always question the return on social media. I think 
I think what you can gain from social media, from our perspective, is that you always have to have a presence wherever you can. But I don't think you're getting instant clients. I think I think it's a long-term investment because I think people will follow you on whatever platform they're they're looking at for a long time before they finally have saved enough money to buy that piece of land or uh, they have enough equity in their current house where they can do their remodel and stuff like that. I think one of the most interesting things that I've seen is that so many architects want to want to do the design build track at this point. And I, I, you know, we've already, we've already, I've already elaborated on how it's been beneficial for us in, in all the different kinds of ways. But that's probably been the most exciting uh, move recently is, is architects embracing being, becoming a contractor and what I would call retaking the master builder position again. There's an architect out of, uh, who's one of our bigger competitors. We actually just came out of a, um, that project I was talking about earlier with my uh, Al Gore's doing. Um, he, he, I think he took himself from a $1 million gross last year or the year before to $4 million. And that's actually where we're projected to go with our, with our development project too. As a conglomerate business, you know, there are all these different entities for legal reasons and separations. You don't have the whole stack of cards and dominoes fall over. But um, that multiplier effect of taking on more responsibility is, is what I've seen. Um, and, and that's most exciting to me from a, from a professional standpoint. There really is a, a relationship between your willingness to embrace risk, uh, as difficult as it feels, uh, and what you can come away from in terms of profit, but not just profit. Uh, really, there's all kinds of benefits in terms of uh, control of the quality of your work and the ability to not sacrifice design intent. Yeah. The other thing I really like about is architects doing, taking on a little bit more, doing more builds, you know, even if they're just acting as a general contractor, they're not doing the development portion of it. I just had uh, Nicholas Renard on the podcast a couple weeks ago. And one of the best, one of the best pieces of advice I think I've ever heard so far about when you take on that role is your ability to extend uh, cash flow and just staying alive if the economy tanks again. Because if you have projects that you've designed and you've convinced the client or they've asked you and you want to work with them in a the, in the contractor capacity, if they are, if the, if the permit is pulled, if they're about to, if, they're, if the financing is set and you have shovel-ready projects, but the economy crashes, if they're still funded, that could stretch you out, you know, two or three years. And if that's, if that's all the dip is, hopefully, the next one, um, then while architecture work kind of goes away or is at least very scarce, you know, you're out there with a hard hat doing your thing. You're still eating very well. You don't have to lay, lay anybody off. And I think not having to lay anybody off, just, you know, emotional stuff aside that I already talked about, but being able to maintain, if you're a small firm like us, we're, we're a firm of seven, being able to maintain that core group of people who, uh, believe in what you're doing, work hard every day, but more than that, understand the process and the processes internally and not having to find somebody else and retrain them again is so valuable. Because if you can maintain that, if you can maintain that group of people in a lull, this is what I believe anyway, we haven't tested it out, but that's what we're hoping for is in that lull and you come out of it, you can do something like franchise. 
I think you could you could start doing at branches where you could double the staff at that point because all of a sudden you have people who can um, basically become you can replace yourself, right? Because those people know all the ins and outs of the firm, and all of a sudden you can you know you can just concentrate on doing okay. I'm just going to do sales. I already have a staff who can do all the drawings, um, all the submittals, and, and managing the projects. It gives you a lot more flexibility as a business owner and as a professional, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of, one of the things that I've observed over the time where I've been focused on the AEC industry, and I'm really happy to see it, is you know when I when I first began uh, serving this industry. Um, I had come from other industries where, uh, let's just say, there there were some more, I don't want to sound snotty or anything, but there were some more sophisticated attitudes toward things like marketing. And there was a much greater kind of cultural resistance in architecture toward things like marketing and toward things like business. Now, you always had savvy people um, who knew how to market in architecture, and you always had people who were committed to running a good business. Uh, and those folks were very often uh, doing some of the best work. Uh, so there really wasn't any reason why somebody would have to believe that there's a trade-off between running a good business and doing great design, or doing the kind of projects that would uh, where not everything's a bread and butter project, but some of them are actually quite creatively rewarding to do. And what I've been really excited to see is I've been excited to see architects becoming much more sophisticated in how they look at marketing themselves and how they look at running their businesses, where they're dropping this idea that there's some, you know, some sellout component to marketing yourself or to uh, focusing on your business. You mentioned earlier that you had done a show episode called Designing Your Business, and I think that that's a very healthy way to look at it for someone who's coming from a creative background. But more than that, I think it's also just a very accurate way to look at um, what the experience can be like of being an entrepreneur um, who is running a business, and that's, that's in essence what any small firm architect is. Yeah, I'm also, I'm also very happy that, um, it, well, to hear of that architects are, it's not a bad thing to market yourself finally. Because <laughs> you can't, you know, what's it, yeah, because what's interesting is if we ever hit a slow period again, there's, I have all these ideas about data that I'd like to dissect on what, what has occurred over the last 10 years with our firm, um, when, like when, when, the, when we have the most inquiries coming in per month, uh, or quarter, or you know, when 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 is typically the slow spot? What is the what is the, the, the lull? But one 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 that one that I've always been interested in is what what would we consider a rock star project um, compared to a bread and butter project? And what is the percentage of rock star projects that we have that we're we're doing on an annual basis uh, compared to just bread and butter ones? Because I think it would help. I think everybody that comes out of architecture school, or at least most people, have the perception that they're just going to be doing cool buildings all day long. Because even our website is disingenuous in the way that we're only showing our best stuff. We're only showing the stuff that we kind of want to do over and over again in the sense that it is 
you know, high-end modern or high-end craftsmen, something with, that they spend you know, a fair amount of money on per square foot. But behind that hood is a lot, a lot of bread and butter that allowed us to get there. So, you know, have, having that kind of data set and showing employees, and then, you know, I think it would give them perspective. But then the second thing I think it would do is give them a greater appreciation for when they do get that quote unquote rock star project put on their plate and they're the project designer. So it makes a lot of sense that that's what people would see because if that's the kind of work that you want, you got to put out there in the world um, what it is that you want to get back. So I guess one of the questions that I would have is not just what's the percentage of rock star projects versus bread and butter projects, but what was the process that you went through to find those rock star projects and to, to bring them in? So in other words, is there something repeatable in that experience? You know, was there a was there an avenue, a marketing avenue or communication avenue that you used that helped get you out there into the right uh, audience, right? To to the kind of people who are going to hire you to do rock star projects. Um, are there any levers that you can press that will help you get more of that kind of work? Now, earlier you were talking, you made several references to, to the downturn. And I don't think that we should use language like if a downturn happens. I think we should use language like when a downturn happens because it's just the way of things. You know, downturns, downturns happen all the time. We have uh, quite a historically long recovery since the Great Recession. If you look at it, you know, technically like an economist would, but it's not unprecedented. There, there's a uh, a recovery in um, in Australia, for instance, that's almost twice as long as ours. So it's not historically unprecedented. But I think everybody would be smart if they had a plan for what to do in case you know in case something goes awry. So there's uh, there's one of the people in our strategic advisory group. Just a, a brilliant guy in running organizations, and his name is Glenn Morrison, and he talked about this concept called mapping the downturn. Um, he used to be the global CEO for Tarquette, so he was running a multi-billion-dollar company. And prior to doing the global role, he was in charge of all of uh, Tarquette's U U.S. operations. And he said he went in there when he first got there, and his first uh, program was to tell all of his people, hey, I want you to get me a plan for what happens when 25% of our business goes away. Now, times were really good, and they were making all kinds of, of money at the time, so people thought he was a little bit nuts, and he kept insisting, no, I want you to give me a plan for what we would do if 25% of our business went away overnight. So they wound up coming up with, with a plan for that that Glenn called mapping the downturn. And they went ahead and started to uh, make some of the improvements to the company and cut some of the things that they needed to cut. And when the downturn did come, they actually wound up making more money than they ever had because they were already ready. Now, that's a story on a really, really big scale, but it absolutely goes all the way down to a solo practitioner because anybody who went through the last Great Recession 
understands that you can have virtually all your pipeline dry up and you can have signed contracts canceled. And these things can happen in quite a, you know, uh, these things can happen overnight and they can happen uh, at a big scale. So my question would be, have you thought about how it is that you might map the downturn for your firm? You know what's interesting about this this last question is uh, this is sort of how I was gonna I was gonna ask you a last a last question that is almost verbatim of what you've been going on, <laughs> uh, and it was gonna be what is one piece of advice you'd give a small firm architect or business owner as we near the end of this business cycle? Because I think we're I think we're it's possible we're there. And like you said, me because it's been about ten years um, since Wall Street went under and you know the whole mess that happened there. But then we could be like Australia, where it's doubled. Who knows? I, you know, there's a couple. Uh, my wife runs. My wife is an investor, and she runs with some other investors. Um, and I always ask them about charts. Uh, you know, what is the chart saying? What is the if you look at a three-year of the Dow, what could happen? A lot of them say it could double. Honestly, which is kind of crazy, but they go if it doubles, then you really got to be worried. Once it doubles, then it's it, what goes up must come down. Um, so I, I think this is a good place to end to end our conversation today. What what I would do is <clears throat> our focus is debt. We have incurred debt. We we incurred some debt when we built the first tiny house, which then catapulted us all the you know second ones, the development, and now obviously we have a two million dollar loan we have to pay off um, on December December first of 2019, and we're almost there. We almost have all of them sold. But our our goal is to completely. Uh, kind of going back to what I said earlier too is it's time for our, I think our firm to if we've been around for 10 years to sort of come up with a business plan a true business plan and start streamlining things and pay off debt I, I it, it's like the old cliche that everybody says you know debt debt just get it rid of as much debt as you can so our goal is to completely rid um, our architecture company of any debt that we have whatsoever, and then you know, operate purely in cash from here on out, um, pay off the credit card each month. Um, this is all after the development you know, is hopefully sold in the next couple months, and then even pay off our, our personal debt. So it's my personal goal to, to pay off my mortgage um, with the profits that come from our development and, and my, my Suburban that I drive around, that's a company Suburban. Um, but to just streamline the whole thing, ratchet everything down, and then I want to go through our bank statements and see if there's any extraneous stuff that we're spending money on and really understand where, where everything is at. And then the final piece of it is, because we're sort of at this 10-year uh, mark, is to have sort of a retreat with the firm. And Alex and I have been talking about this in the past couple of weeks about how do we, uh, you know, at what point do you show everybody what everybody's making? Do you do that? Do you not do that? Or do you just show it from a firm standpoint? You say, look, here's an F9 gross last year. Here's what all the salaries cost. Here's all the extra stuff that costs, you know, that, that we had to spend money on. And then here's the money that we had profitability-wise. And then have some tough, dis tough discussions with, with them, each employee or as a collective, and say, hey, what, what if 25% or percent of our work goes away. Look look at what would happen to the profit line. You know, are you guys prepared to, you know, possibly ratchet down to only working four or three days a week? 
how do we be as lean as possible and maybe even hand them um, a book, you know, like the Lean Startup or something that's updated like that and kind of get everybody thinking like that again. Because I think it's so easy. That's the thing, I, I, again, the scar that has never went away from Alex and I, and I hope it never does, is really always trying to be like a lean startup, even though we're a tenured firm at this point, I think is critical. And no matter how, it's so easy for everybody to, while we're, we're all eating so well right now, with this amazing economy, it's so easy to lose track of that just because you're suffocating in work and you, you aren't planning ahead a little bit because it can uh, it could just the rug can get pulled out from underneath you. You know, it, it was that quick in '09, and it's bound to happen again. Maybe not as, as catastrophic, but you know, th- those are the those are the things that we're trying to do. I think just uh, debt is really simple. You can get rid of it. Get rid of it. Well, there's a lot of wisdom in what you're saying, but there's always this balance to hit, right? Because you know, I'm attracted to the idea of lean growth. In other words, there's uh, you're you're running your organization without any waste, but you're reinvesting smartly uh, in the business, which you you talked about how important that was to you at the beginning of our discussion. But the idea is is it you don't want to go so far that you're playing only defense before the before the downturn, right? It's about right. playing smart offense, and part of you know, it, it's about going after a healthy top line, which sometimes you have to invest to do. And by that, I mean you're going to have to invest in things like marketing. And it's not just um, uh, it's not just cash, but it's actually time. And if you're putting your time into marketing, you're not putting your time into other more directly billable stuff. But at the same time, you're going to need to uh, run a business where the bottom line is quite healthy too, and that goes back to the trimming that you're that you're talking about. Debt is a, is another interesting question. There's a lot of factors into to to decide whether, in one individual's case versus another, whether it makes sense for them to to use debt. You guys use debt in what hopefully will be a very smart way to uh, to do the development and to get into that line of business. Uh, to have your first go of it profitable, which is wonderful. But then also, now you have the knowledge of how to do it. You've got that. You've got that experience, and you had to leverage. You, you had to use leverage in order to, to get that experience. So it's uh, it's just a question of balancing out what the potential positives are in your situation versus what the size and type of the risks are. And then yeah. making a decision that's right for you. Generally speaking, though, um, a lot of those traditional uh, business principles, like avoiding unproductive debt or covering up uh, poor operations by through debt, uh, you know, cash covers a lot of sin. And it's uh, you know, when times are good, um, it can be very easy to look away from. Uh, let's just say you've got uh, you've got people who are not contributing to the level that you need them to based on the salary that you're giving them, or um, there's some other way that you're 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 not spending intelligently on your overhead. Now's the time to fix those kind of things, balanced out with something that I think you were referring to before, 
when you said you really want to keep your people and that there's such tremendous benefit to doing so, you know, money and money and people have to be kept in balance, right? Because at the end of the day, any of us who are in professional services, it's really all about talent and people and making sure that we're we're positioning ourselves to always be at the at the best uh, for for both of those. So, you know, is for in terms of someone who's got a solo practice or or a small firm, I think a lot of it is just making sure that you if you feel that there are deficiencies in your business education that you go ahead and get those, right? And understand what the strong fundamentals are of running a business of any kind and make sure that you are um, make sure that you are uh, doing that in your own business. You know, it's a, and it's something where, um, and again, I, I don't want to overplay this idea that people are resistant to uh, all these businessy kind of ideas. I mean, I, I was actually talking with a firm principal uh, about an hour before we started chatting, and, you know, they're about a 120-person firm uh, that's in the Midwest, and this guy was saying, you know, I couldn't put together a spreadsheet if you paid me to. <laughs> and he was talking about how he just, he's resistant to it, he's a creative person, that's really what's important to him. In that size of organization, thank goodness he's got other people who, uh, other architects in their firm who are paying attention to the spreadsheet. And what I would encourage this principle to um, uh, to to know is that there doesn't need to be a contradiction between creativity and running a smart business. In fact, what you can do is you can leverage your unique perspective as a creative person to run your business your way, as long as it makes sense, as long as it's in line with um, with good fundamentals. Good fundamentals of running any kind of business, especially a professional service firm. Yeah, they're paramount, and I, I think I think people do have resistances, you know, like that. Um, you know, some fundamental things that I would just rattle off is if you are if you if you're just a sole proprietor, you should still have QuickBooks. You should have a part-time uh, bookkeeper. It's trust me, it's going to pay off. It saves Alex and I so much time. We took the leap, I think six years ago and got a bookkeeper seven years ago. Um, it's huge. And then the other one is if you can consistently pay yourself a bi-monthly or monthly or weekly salary and put yourself, you know, be, you literally become a w, W-2 employee, if, even if you're a sole, sole practitioner. The reason why I like always like to talk about that is that it has allowed us to leverage credit and in a smart way, kind of, you know, what you talked about earlier is that, you know, we, we've done that. Banks like to check boxes. Bankers do. They're not, I, I, there's some good bankers out there. I, I, I work with them often, but they're not really creative people. And so, and they can't be because they they have to check boxes. And one of the shop boxes they like to check, if you want to go get a mortgage, if you want to maybe even just buy a piece of land, and you're going to be one little development, do stuff like that, or, or you need office equipment and you need some credit. They need to see that you're consistently getting a consistent paycheck. You're being consistent. So those kind of fundamental things, although they seem they are mundane, um, but if you 
you think about how you can use those mundane things in a creative way. I think it echoes perfectly um, with your sentiment. So, or, Bob, or how you can solve those those problems creatively by using tools and uh, using resources outside of yourself to to get people to help you with those areas that you may not feel particularly strong in, or they don't line up with you know what your what your skill set or what your interests are. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Bob, this has been an awesome conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for another two hours, but I do have to get back to the job site. So I just want to thank you for coming on Inside the Firm today. Um, and then how can people follow you? Are you on Twitter? I know you're on LinkedIn. How can people get in touch with you? Yes, yes. and so I'm also on Twitter at, uh, at Bob Fisher uh, ATL. So Beautiful. take a look there. Um, and Design Intelligence is at D-I-N-E-T. And um, probably the best way, though, is to connect with me via LinkedIn. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, we'll have to have you uh, back on um, down the road. Again, really appreciate it, and we will uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Sounds great. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much.